right, welcome to Newcastle Muse Talk, now on to our third episode. Thanks to anybody who has listened to either one of or both of the first two episodes. Just some general contact info on how to find us. We're on Apple iTunes, the Apple Podcast app, SoundCloud links get posted on the Facebook page at facebook.com slash Newcastle Muse Talk every Wednesday. And we've also got a webpage at newcastlemuseotalk.home.blog. Um, they're all the avenues you can go to to get the show. New episodes, as I say, every Wednesday. And today's guest is John Fox. John's a sound engineer and a drummer. If you went to a gig at the small ballroom uh, for an extended period of time there, you were guaranteed to be witness to John's work. Uh, he's worked pretty much any room worth working in town and has worked with some of the, the greatest artists of all time, Pink Floyd and the Eagles, as you'll find out in the conversation. Um, the conversation split over two episodes, both are out today. The first one deals mostly with his personal background and his experiences working as a sound man overseas and a roadie with those bands and others that I mentioned uh, and touches towards the end of the local uh, scene. The conversation goes towards the local scene. The second episode's much more local scene-based. I didn't want to cut out all of John's stories because he tells the story well. He has a lot of them. He's a, uh, quite, a, quite a talker. Uh, but this is sort of the last of our intensely long episodes. Uh, the episodes moving forward will go more towards 35 to 40-minute episodes. Um, try and be a bit more concise. The first three were a bit lengthy. Um, I guess that's just because I knew the guys pretty well. Um, and all because John talks a lot too. <laughs> um, but let me know if there's a preference for the short or long format. Um, share the links to the podcast if you like. We've got interviews coming up with Tim Clack from Porn Logic, Marcus Wright from Big Apache and the Wickham Park Hotel, uh, Helena Kitley, Kitley, sorry, from Grand, Glam Slam on the way. But for now, strap yourself in. Part one of our chat with John Fox. Check out the second part as well. Thanks for tuning in. sort of general background you're obviously you're an american fellow originally where are you from originally in the uh, States? born and raised in northern new jersey um and spent the first 21 years of my yep. life there so i went i'm like one of those kind of odd people that i actually <laughs> went through my whole public school career i went through the whole same school system except for I took a little detour off and went off and did a year in military school, mm-hmm. which was an interesting little <laughs> part of life. And, and what's weird is, you know, you look at, you know, I've worked in rock and roll and all this stuff all these years, that um, I actually chose that place yeah, yeah. out of all these options that were... What spoke to you about military well, school? Well, it, it was, it, you know, it was the Reagan 80s and there was the whole, you know, <laughs> now, you know, it was the whole, you know, uh, D.A.R.E. program yeah, yeah, and yeah. don't do drugs and just say no and all that and, and all that. Roddy, Roddy, Raw. And, you know. <laughs> you weren't selling out to the man, were you, John? <laughs> no, actually, I was in a really weird position because there was a lot of. Um, it was all really hyperbolic, right? Mm. And, you know, I was not living in, you know, the n- New York fucking ghetto or yeah, anything yeah. like that. And I wasn't in the streets of LA. I was in. Lily White, middle class, <laughs> you know, all of our fathers took the train into New York City, yeah. you know, and, and did the corporate job and all that. And, you know, and so, but there was all this like over the top hyperbole, not saying that there weren't drug problems and stuff. Yeah, that, yeah. But there was this real overreaction to it. And I think my, 
my family bought into the idea of like, oh, he's an artist and he'll be pulled into this. So, you know, a yeah, year yeah. of structure, rah, 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 rah. And so they just wanted me to go to, go get out of the public school system into mm-hmm. like a, maybe a more controlled environment for a year or whatever. Yeah. And so I was like, uh, okay. And, you know, I'd been overweight as a young kid, mm-hmm. like pretty overweight. And so, like, my public high school experience had some <laughs> issues, so I was just like, eh. Let me go. That kid I'm familiar with. Uh, yeah, yeah, so, <laughs> so, like, all of a sudden, and so one of the things that, that appealed to me about the military vibe, and that was secondary, um, was the uniforms, and it's something that I like about schools here, which surprised me, um, is the uniforms are an equalizer, mm-hmm. right? Suddenly, because, you know, I, I was on the bottom tier of the middle class, yeah, right? Yeah. And my, my, my parents were one of the first, you know, no-fault divorce families of the 70s, so yeah, there was yeah. that whole thing, like I came from a broken home kind of bullshit that yeah. kind of went on, right? And it was just all, and, and you know, I'm, I'm a, you know, as a kid at the time, like, this is weird, you know, it's just like, this just seems so... <laughs> alien to and so I kind of said yeah okay and went off and the band director there was a guy by the name um, of Major Frank Laziza and he this was like his retirement gig I guess Mm -hmm. he was the used to be the U.S. Army chief band director right and had been for like a couple of decades so Mm -hmm. he took on this military school and they won like every award that they could possibly compete for And so it was like, okay, if I'm going to do this, here's this really high standards band leader. Yeah, let's go do that for a while. You know, and there's the whole marching band culture, right? So, Mm -hmm. like, I wasn't going to be able to participate in the marching band culture in American high school, which is a huge thing to do Mm -hmm. and hugely competitive, 100-plus musicians and 200 guard. And it's a really cool thing to do, which has kind of died a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, But... uh, I got to do that on a really cool, different kind of level, yeah. and that's playing drums. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Doing, I was, I, I ended up being the first freshman, which is first year of high school, mm-hmm. to make the first string cadence team because mm-hmm. there were two drum lines. One played the songs, and then one played just the marching rhythms. Yep. And I went for that, and they were like, you know, they took like almost thirty minutes to play or something, never written down and all taught mm-hmm. by rote. So it was this thing that you had to just work it. Yeah, and, and learn it, and then you had, and then and then you had to go to Mage and say that you were up to challenge someone for their spot, and yeah. you better not be <laughs> shy. You better be ready to give it a yeah, red hot go. Yeah. <laughs> and I, there was a guy that I wa- I watched him. He on all these particular parts, he'd pull back to let the other guys cover up for his sloppiness, mm-hmm. and I went and fixed that. <laughs> and he hated me for the entire rest of my tenure there. <laughs> but I got the really, really cool black and yellow yeah, yeah. rope thing for my dress uniform mm-hmm. and all that. And it was cool. It was like all of the politics was removed because it was kind of a military environment. Yeah. So like all of the weird childish politics that you were dealing with as a, a 13 and 14 year old, mm-hmm. a lot of it got removed because 
the structure was there. Yeah. And they had a kind of an interesting way that they ran classes and stuff that I think that a lot of places could learn from. There was a lot of, for it being this military thing, there was a bit, a couple of educational experiments going on in mm -hmm. their controlled environment that I thought were really, really fascinating yeah. that allowed kids to actually focus on particular stru structures instead of having to juggle a million balls at once. Yeah, yeah. Was that your sort of first... You were already doing music before. You oh yeah, yeah, man. I started, I, my mother's a concert pianist, yeah, right? Yeah. So I started, um, and I guess drums ended up being almost like you know my bit of musical. That, that was your first instrument. Musical drums, rebellion, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I dinkered around on piano, but my mom was single again when I was like five, yep. and so this was the seventies. Uh, a friend of hers who was a Broadway performer had a nightclub act that used to tour through like the New York State and like the Pocono Mountains and mm -hmm. stuff like that. And it was like kind of like a version of the Tony Orlando and Don thing, you know, yeah, you yeah. know, it was the tux and he had the two back, <laughs> the, the, he was Filipino and mm -hmm. had these two, um, uh, uh, um, you know, backing vocalist dancer girls and yeah, stuff yeah. and had the rad bloody cover band that was playing, you know, Steely Dan Asia stuff when it was current mm -hmm. in the charts, yep. right? And so in my basement was this like really rad bunch of like session players put together as they got together going on the first tour. Mm. And I guess what I'm told is I just sat on the staircase just fixated on this drummer. Just absorbing. And just was like going just nuts. And the day that they left to go on the road the first time, I go down and um, this guy, Ricardo Tobio, he's a really good friend of my mother's, really good friend of the family. So they're going, ready to take off. So they packed up all their gear, da da da. I'm called down to say goodbye. And there's this four piece mutt pile of a drum set sitting yeah. on the garage floor. And I'm kind of <laughs> like, what the hell's that? And they're like, that's yours. Yeah, cool. And so my mom had seen it. And my mom, being a, a pianist and a, and a piano teacher that was my whole life growing up with 60 students going through my house every week um and so she went well this looks like it's the one and within three or four months i was with a private teacher yep. you know because my mom's like if you're gonna do this you're gonna learn how to do it Probably, you know yeah. and you know it was me and Beatle records, you know, you know, it's like almost a cliche now, you know, it all, it all started with the Beatles, but <clears throat> I also grew up around, uh, you know, my mother played incredible two piano stuff. So, and she loved Dvorak and she loved, um, I mean like every really good pianist that knows how to kind of, I don't know how else to say it, but make love to the instrument, love yeah. Chopin. Yeah, yeah. You know, that is the... That next level. You know, um, and just, it's written for pianists, you know? Mm. It's just like, you know, when you're playing something as a bass player, you're singing something as a vocalist, mm. and you know when it's been written with that human element of the instrument in mind, mm -hmm. as a player, you can feel those things, and you can naturally make them come out because they're like natural algorithms in our synapses, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> and so I had all that, and their big thing was Gershwin. It was two piano Gershwin. Mm -hmm. And um, I found out about the just weirdest bit of trivia like only 15 years ago. My mother's now passed, but um, she played with the same woman <coughs> for all of my life. 
And they were like Mike and Ike. My mom was five foot on a good day. <laughs> yeah. And Reba was this like six foot two Jewish woman with these humongous <laughs> hands and the big voice and the, you know, come over here, give Reba a hug, you know, and the, and the whole kind of like whiskey cigarette voice and the whole thing, yeah. the nails, except for when they performed. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, I knew that they were playing the true original Gershwin versions. They wrote everything on two piano first. It was orchestrated later. But if you buy the if you buy them, they're simplified. It was a yeah. thing. Like anything Brahms, all that stuff, the famous yellow and green books that used to, you know, you see with the classics, mm -hmm. they're all, most of them are simplified somewhat to make them more accessible because of the cost of printing. This is yep. like a, a thing that happened, you know. And so I knew that they were playing, they had found, the, they had learned the changes somehow, da 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 da. Hmm. Well, every time the Gershwins wrote a new piece, they give it to a mob named Ferranti and Teicher, and they were the premier American piano duo. They did both mm -hmm. vaudeville, comedy, jazz, and crazy stuff, but they were the go-to guns, yeah, yeah. right? And I didn't realize that Reba's next-door neighbor was Teicher. Mm -hmm. And so, you, yeah. you know, I'm seeing half of the life <laughs> in my basement, mm -hmm. where it's me going, you know, in the morning getting ready for school, yeah. getting stuff out of the dryer, and, you know, on the other side of the wall is my mom's studio with the two grand pianos, and, and I'm hearing, like, the original thing being rehearsed. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I f find out that when they were over there, they were going over and actually reading off of the original handwritten transcripts yeah. that Ger the Gershwins gave to Teicher mm. and added in all the missing <laughs> extras. So I actually grew up getting to hear these things. And when you hear them in like that, mm. and like the initial notes of an American in Paris, when they're proper, mm. just you suddenly are like, Close your eyes. I'm in the middle of a European city. Yeah, yeah. And you're just like, wow. <laughs> you know? And they and those guys legitimated, legitimized the blues to white people yeah, by yeah. introducing the blue notes into classical music. Yeah. And suddenly it brought it out of the houses of ill repute. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and became legitimized. And we have the Gershwins directly to thank for that. And so that that's where my... Musical thing, you know, I love my metal and I love my Beatles yeah. and I love all this other stuff, but it's like, it really is far and wide. Yeah. If it's good and it has soul, <laughs> we're on. What was sort of the first band that you were gravita that you gravitated to for your own, I guess, musical taste? You know, who's that first band that sparked right. something in you? You know, like I said, the Beatles first and what I love, and I think one of the things that the Beatles taught me was that no matter what you think you intended to be as a band because mm -hmm. I always respected the fact that they really were a band they kind of started out as kind of like this boy band yeah but it, you know that's only going to go so far mm. right and there's a point where you have to say that nothing should be out of bounds and when you do that yeah and not pigeonhole yourself the truly wonderful things come. Yeah. And so I think I've had a trend of slightly odd bands. <laughs> 
But then I have a huge thing for some, you know, wonderfully glorious pop, sometimes garbage. <laughs> um, but like, so, you know, you get after the Beatles, um, there was this whole time, like, one of my, f I think the first al album I got brand new for Christmas was Hotel California, mm -hmm. right? So that was a huge thing. So like, you know, and I, I, I loved all, you know, I did like all that country stuff. Uh, and especially this country rock thing that was new. Yeah. But I didn't really know at the time that this was groundbreaking. It was just, that's <laughs> really awesome. And the drummer's singing that? Yeah, yeah. Cool, right? And so again, like the Eagles have that thing where like no fixed lead singer. Mm -hmm. And all these things are going to end up culminating with a band, <laughs> which you already know who it's, who it's going to be. Yeah, yeah. Right? So there was that. But at the same time, I'm a young musician, and so you're looking for players. And it was weird in the 80s. So I started playing drums in... So I must have been six or seven when I got that first kit. Yeah, yeah. About then, right? It's, a, it's an early start, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, like, I was before anybody started the school band programs and stuff like that. I was, you know... And I thought that was... No I, to me, you know, mom was a, mom was <laughs> a private music that. teacher. That just seemed normal to me, you yeah. know? So after, after them, we had, so like at the same time though, you know, we had just had kind of like Black Sabbath was a thing that because yep. of my brother's eight track tapes, I could go and find and the doors, yeah, yeah. right? Wait, did you sit in the family scheme? Are you younger, youngest brother? I'm the, the youngest. Yeah. I'm, I'm the unexpected surprise that the other two are bought. I'm the only one that yeah. came, came by, you know, normal <laughs> organic method. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So I had a brother that was seven and a half years older, a sister that's 11 years older. And um, so my brother had all, you know, the, the Beatles best ofs, you know, yep. where they're looking over the, 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 the balcony, yeah, the, balcony and the, and the blue the and the red. Yeah, yeah. Devoured those, but he had rubber sole. I devoured that um, and peppers and all that. And so, you know, the Beatles, everything was already out. So it was like once I got into that, it was just like boom. Yeah. You know, I listened to the best of, and then I got to hear them all in context of the records, and I immediately got the timeline yeah. and went, ah, oh, these guys went through this, like, development. Listen to this. This is really cool. Mm. So then all of a sudden, you know, it was just like, ooh, this doomy thing over here, you know, with, <laughs> with Sabbath, just yeah. rad, and Zeppelin. It was funny. I, I always loved Zeppelin, and I adore Bonham, but I was less directly attracted to Zeppelin as some of my peers were. Mm -hmm. I really kind of fell a little bit more on the Sabbath side yeah, of the land. I'm Sabbath, she's Zeppelin. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But like, I, it's, not that, it's not that I say that one or either yeah. is, the, is the better. Just one, one kind of just kind of grabs me by the cajones yeah, and yeah. the other one, not, not as much, but yeah. I love it. Actually, we were having this conversation the other day where it's kind of like when, you, when you're talking about music, it's always, you know... Zeppelin or Sabbath or Neil Young or Bob Dylan or you know yeah oh no no but see that's it's equal like, I came to yeah, the Stones yeah. later but like I completely you know love the Stones and there's a Stone story we will get to later yeah. okay <laughs> um, but so you know there was all that but then probably the next really big fundamental band because I was looking at players mm. you know you wanted players guys that you know you wanted to try to emulate yeah. people that that pushed some boundaries yeah. you felt musically. And so, you know, 
at that time, it was kind of either jazz fusion mm -hmm. or metal. Yeah. Or what was becoming metal at that time. So like Priest was starting to yeah. land and Iron Maiden was starting to land. Mm -hmm. And so I really got drawn to a lot of that European stuff and yeah. the 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 what now they refer to as the new wave of English yeah. heavy metal, you know. Um, I loved all that stuff. Um, and <clears throat> I didn't really realize at the time that I had a real liking for the punk side because where I grew up, it, we found out about it via metal. And yeah. where I grew up in Jersey, punk and metal were a little less segregated. Yeah. We were a little less jeans and safety pins, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? But we we kind of felt we came from a similar place and we didn't under, quite understand the political stories of you know the clash and stuff like that. Yeah. But we could respect it. In the 90s later, we started to get our version of some of that where they started telling the American version, which is not a political thing. It's much more what my friend did to me, the backstab, yeah. right? And then that suddenly made American punk mm. develop into its own thing, which is, which is something that I got my answer to later, kind of, yep. you know, in, in that part of my growth. I was like, oh, now I understand why I really <laughs> did like that. Yeah. And the people that gr gravitated towards it from the American side made a really cool accessible form for my yeah, part yeah. of the world. Van Halen was the big one. Yeah. Van Halen because it was uh Alex. He was Bonham <laughs> and Ginger Baker, man. And would you say he was as impactful on the drums as because I'm a guitarist, so I don't know Eddie, yeah, every oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, he and, revolutionized. And it was the and it was the brotherhood too. I really love the brotherhood of those two. And um, you know, and they're a great American migrant story. It's so forgotten. And if you ever get the if you've not seen it, there's a really, really cool like half hour thing on it, it was an American story series done somewhere where Eddie talks about some of his innovations and actually tells his migrant story mm -hmm. where, you know, they came over on a boat. His dad met his, his new wife while overseas in Indonesia, mm -hmm. decides to bring them back, plays on the boat their way over yeah. as a jazz clarinetist mm -hmm. and ends up coming over here and works <laughs> as a flipping school janitor. Yeah, yeah. And ends up creating, get, but passing on the love and the passion of music to these two guys mm. that reinvented not only playing styles, both of them, yeah. because one fed the other, mm. right? The the you know and an incredible drive between oh, the two. Oh man, to push the that competition! Next. Like you know, yeah. one took the other's instrument off them. Yeah. <laughs> While one's pay, working the paper route to pay for the instrument, you know, yeah. I mean, it's like it—it it was that kind of thing, and I and you know, as a kid, I loved his kind of wild side because, like, you know, in in the eighties, man, they really pushed that pushing it thing. Yeah. Dave was just coked out of his mind and going <laughs> crazy, and meanwhile, there's these two geniuses keeping this musical fire going. Yeah. Um. But then 
the machine got a hold of that type of music and started to really become cookie cutter. And we got into the era of poison da, 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 and all this other stuff. And like, you know, I'm from Jersey. Bon Jovi is a, a, a definite thing for me culturally, mm-hmm. a little less musically. Interesting. Because <laughs> um, of age, it's weird. Even though I was playing in as a peer kind of yep. a little younger, but we were playing at the same time in New Jersey. Yeah, yeah kind of coming up i relate more to the springsteens in a weird way and then i skip another generation and i feel more like a smithereen which was the 90s 2000s kind of jersey band right so um and it culminates and there's so much i could go into but it culminates with fishbone yeah and, you know, Fishbone comes from the fact that, like, Earth, Wind & Fire I loved and Funkadelic I loved and all that stuff. And here comes this band. And they first got me with a song called Ma and & Pa. Mm-hmm. And for the first time, I heard a band. So I come from this divorced family from the 70s, right? And here comes this band that writes this song about divorce mm-hmm. from a kid's point of view, who's got the sister who's possibly hoeing herself because she's lost her self-respect because she's become a pawn with the lawyers and the parents. Yeah, yeah. And I went, oh my God. And it's this wild ska thing. Mm. And I'm going, wow, I didn't think I'd dig this. But it's <laughs> kind of punky. And it's kind of, there's this rough guitar in there. Too. And I'm like going, ah. So I listen to the record. And there's like all this stuff. And yeah. I'm going, wow, man. And I'm looking at the credits and I'm like going, this is like six black guys that just graduated high school like a couple years yeah, yeah. before me and got assigned at like age 18. Mm. And suddenly I had this win. They, they drew me in with telling me my own story. Yeah, yeah. And then I started to listen to the other stories they told. Mm-hmm. And I followed them through this incredible development of going from this kind of happy, trippy, eclectic ska band that laid down some truths from time to time to something that became a bit angrier with the times and always relevant. But it was this weird thing. You had these guys, and at a time, my whole life was living in a culture that was like trying to bring everybody together because... Everybody was segregated. Yeah. Right? Musically, we were segregated segregated by business. And we were having things like Lollapalooza where I had I was I was working in these shows where I had George Clinton, the P Funk All Stars, followed by the Beastie Boys. Yeah. Followed by the Smashing Pumpkins. Yeah. Right? And the year before I would have had Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, Nine Inch Nails, mm-hmm. and Emmy Lou Harris, yeah, yeah. right, and everyone was there for everything, and oh, and right. and like Fishbone talked about, it, we were trying to bring everybody together, yeah, and they talk about how it kind of failed, yeah, because it was almost too much for people to handle, and I've, and uh, <laughs> and I think that might be a good culmination of my musical taste, right there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's some of the you've probably done sand with a ton of bands? Who's some of the the favorite bands that you've gotten to work with on the sound level in terms of doing the live sound for bands? Ah, uh, man. Um, it's wild. For a long time, I was 
a festival monitor guy. It yeah. seemed like that was my gig. Mm -hmm. So I'd have like 20 bands go across <laughs> my stage yeah, in yeah. an afternoon. And, you know, Soundwave, I did a few, a few years in a row, mm -hmm. hardcore stage, and saw some just amazing bands come on and bash it out. Um, and it's just like some of those things are just like such a blur. Do you get to do Terra Sandwave? Who? Terra? I think so, man. I like that. Like, You're a killer, man. I really dug Terra. You know, like, you know, uh, uh, what is it? Black Veil Brides and yeah. like a whole bunch of bands around like that kind of thing. And, you know, um, but it's like, it's weird. Like I have this split career. I did a whole bunch of big staging production building ends of things. And so that's mm -hmm. when I got to work for the Rolling Stones, for Pink Floyd, yeah. for the Eagles, mm -hmm. you know, and built these amazing shows. You know, I worked on Voodoo Lounge in the 90s. Like the, the mid-90s had this like stadium thing that was just <laughs> insane. And suddenly a whole bunch of us that had been working, you know, the, the 8,000 and 15,000 mm -hmm. venue, they built a... They built a football dome in town, yeah, yeah. and suddenly, like, we all graduated, <laughs> right? And we got thrown on these things and ended up being successful where we a tour would come into town and then ask me and a bunch of my mates to hop in the van and follow it yeah. to, like, the next few regional shows. So, mm -hmm. like, I six, eight Voodoo Lounge shows, mm -hmm. did three or four Division Bell Pink Floyd shows, which yeah. anyone who's yeah. got the Pulse album, that's yeah. a recording of that tour. Yeah, cool. Um, so, and I had like really, really wild, <laughs> you know, there's all kinds of weird, wild interactions there. <laughs> um, getting to meet Charlie Watts backstage was mm -hmm. probably one of the highlights. Um, and one of my, one of my only like true, like kind of like, I actually let the fan girl out for a second, you know? Um, did you have any disasters where you met a hero and it just turned no, out to be horrible? Look, no, 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 no. Um, one of my favorite people was actually, um, uh, uh, bass player from the Eagles. Um, uh, sorry, man. Personnel, Can't man. think of his name. Awesome. I'm on the Lebowski facade of the fence with no, the no, Eagles, no, no, man. No. I hate the really, fucking he Eagles. Did all, he did all that wonderful falsetto stuff. Anyway, um, and how he does it playing bass, I just <laughs> don't understand. And so, like, you know, things were still a bit sketchy with between some of the members mm -hmm. at that time. You know, it was Hell Freezes Over Tour. It was yeah. them actually getting back together. And it appeared that, like, the major players... <laughs> We're kind of coming from four different corners of the stadium to mm -hmm. converge on the backstage. Yep. Timothy B. Schmidt. There we go. So Tim, though, you come down during the changeover. So like Melissa Etheridge, I think, from memory, was the, was the support act. Mm -hmm. And Melissa would get done, you know, the stage crews doing changeovers. And at our home stadium in San Antonio at the Alamo Dome, um, my house gig there would end up having the keys for the house lights. So I'd yeah. just sit there with headphones on waiting for the call to go ka-chunk and the show's <laughs> on. And I just sat there and wait for the call for him to go, turn the house lights back on, ka-chunk. Yeah. So, you know, I, I got this great gig. And so, you know, being the breeze bike. And Tim would just da-da-da-da-da, P-Bass hanging on his neck, come yeah. up to the um, crew's drinks tables where, you know, it was union gigs. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so there's coffee, tea, and all the soft drinks, sport drinks, and uh, crackers, cookies. Yeah. And so, you know, 20 minutes before he comes on, he'd come out, da, 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 talking to all the crew, da, da, da. 
as easy to talk to as you and I talk, it would just yeah, be like yeah. any other like local Novocastrian walking in the pub <laughs> and coming and talk, coming up and just going, oh, da, 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 da. and he, you know, he'd be warming up his fingers and like about yeah. five minutes before, he'd be like, "Have a great show, guys! Uh, thanks for everything," you know. And he'd go off and then kind of like go to his station and walk out and be amazing. Yeah, cool. And you know, see it <laughs> on the way out, I'd be like, "Thanks, guys!" He'd be like the only one, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and there's a thing where like. Some, and I figured this out a long time ago. Some people, I think, are judged wrongly because they their environment does not allow them to interact yeah. in certain ways. And I've seen this, right? Um, I, I remember rigging for 30-odd foot of grunt with Russell Crowe. Yep. And so like five days in a row or whatever on this, <laughs> on this run, every day, you know, Russell... Thank you for saving my rabbit ears. Um, you know, I like Rusty. He's a divisive character, I, but I liked her. I hey like man, Rusty Crow. He's, he's got his passions, and that's, that's, what, that's what we need. Um, you can passionately apologize when you make a mistake. Uh, but anyway, so, you know, like every day, you know, you kind of have this like little group of handlers, nothing too bad, but, you know, it just seemed like a big production around him. And, you know, I'd see him like kind of like looking over the heads of these people, like mm-hmm. looking at me like going... I'm paying you to do a thing and I see you doing this thing every day and, you know. (laughs) And finally, like, uh, third or fourth day or something, he finally just kind of, like, put two hands in between two people, pushed them aside, (laughs) walked across the pub, and he goes, hi, I'm Russell. And he's like, I'm John, how you doing? He goes, I'm paying you to do What are you doing for me? And I'm like, I'm I'm rigging the PA for your front of house guy. He's front of house guy and I were mates. And I'm just like going, he's going, I am. And he said, you've been doing a great job. Thanks for everything. And kind of like a little eye roll kind of thing. And then like had to go back and deal with this nonsense. Right? Because like he was just wanting to go and play with his band and with his friends. I really think it's just purely just a thing. He used to do this. He wants to go out and do it, have some fun. But you get this lineup of women at the, at the Punter Barricade, man, and it's just like you know, it's it's like someone's got sausages just outside a camera shot. Yeah, and it's just like drooling, and it's just like it's this like kind of like animalistic thing where you're just like going, ah, I wouldn't want to live in that world. You know, um, there's a Michael Jackson one I can tell you if we got time later. But anyway, yeah, yeah. Go, go on. So what was the uh, impetus to get you from the states to Australia? What? Uh... Oh, that's always a really, really, really tricky one. Um. My, I came here because I married someone who wanted to live here and had the rights to do so. Yeah. And that didn't quite turn out the way as planned yeah, after yeah. getting here. And These things do. she went, the boy went, mm-hmm. and I stayed, and I'm really glad that I did. Yeah, yeah. Um, Where I, were you first based in Australia? In Redfern, I, landed, I, landed, I landed in Sydney, yep. originally um, in Co- on Coogee Beach. <laughs> Um, like we first landed and stayed in this youth hostel when we first got here. My wife was about as pregnant as you are. <laughs> um, and, uh, like we were about a few days to not being able to fly out because, you know, we just had, it. we're waiting on the last stamp and stuff yeah. and, you know, got a little weird. So we landed, found a place, got this place right on beach street and could you little one, you know, so that was like a really cool introduction, yeah, you know, yeah. the beach culture and all that. Um, then ended up down kind of more Southern way, mm-hmm. but so it was all Sydney based for a long time. And then I ended up on the central coast, which yep. was finally where it was weird 
it took a long time for me to feel like I was actually living in Australia. And I took <laughs> getting out of like the gray expanse yeah, of yeah. Sydney. Yeah. And it's one of the reasons like I've, and I've had this kind of like migration to Newcastle via a band and mm-hmm. stuff, which we'll probably get to. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and I love this town, you yeah. know, like, you know, we, we, you said we'd probably get to some of the things about the scene and stuff here. And yeah, yeah. sure. So, um, <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, so it's, it, it's all been New South Wales, you yeah. know, aside from being on things and being in a truck or being on a plane and seeing <laughs> some seeing concrete box places. in some city somewhere yeah, and yeah. that being all I've seen of the city yeah. too many times. You got involved in music straight away as soon as you were in the country? Uh, yeah, it yeah. was, it, I, I stumbled into a gig at Star City. Like mm-hmm. I just kind of hit the ground running. I had nothing. Yep. Um, and so I just hit the ground running and started, you know, resumes in hand. And and it just so happened that the guy who was in charge of audio at Star City was putting on a production of the Rocky Horror Show, which was really a theater thing. And I just had a stint doing musical theater for a few years in California. Mm-hmm. He was a rock and roll boy. I am also a rock and roll boy, but I just happened to have this little kind of like, I did this thing for a while. Yeah, yeah. And... I happened to knock on his door and he went, and I got the call the next day. He's like, going, what are you doing tomorrow? <laughs> and from, I got this kind of two IC job at star city for a while. So mm-hmm. for the first couple of years, all of a sudden it was kind of like, I stumbled into like a really groovy house gig in the hottest venue in the country. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> do you, um, do you rate, is that how you support yourself now doing sound? Is that your primary? That, that's it. Yeah, um, yeah. I've done, uh, at, uh, I've, also done music teaching mm-hmm. just recently i've had a break I've, I've taken a break from that but it is all freelance sound work there's a bunch of venues that i work out i work at lazat's which is a wonderful you do have home base venues yeah 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 i've got um it, it seems like i'm everybody every house guy's favorite replacement on <laughs> in, in a lot of places like people people trust me with their yeah yeah space mm-hmm. which i take really seriously because i've run a lot of venues used to run the small ballroom in, yep. in islington ran that for three years that's where i first met he was at the ballroom yeah yeah, yeah man i love and yeah. you know i love that place because we you know we were we were it was new talent all the time i was hearing i was getting to mix live australian music yep. had great touring acts come through had a really cool environment with the the um the LGBT culture in the yep. front and the rock bands in the back and you know it was a really I like creative environments like yeah. that I like uh, Newcastle to me is a is um is an incubator town it's mm-hmm. a term that we have in America um, it's not necessarily where you see the new thing. Mm-hmm. But you see the next best thing while it's working its shit out, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's where you actually are seeing. Austin is an has been an incubator town, and incubator towns are under threat by development yeah, yeah. because you have to have affordable places for artist types to be able to scrape together a living to invest in their art to figuring out what their thing is because then it becomes something that's financially viable yeah, and yeah, everybody yeah. makes a dime on. <laughs> But you got to find a way to do it. So, like Newcastle, I think historically has been a place where, like Houston and San Antonio, Tupit, where I spent a lot of time, where I had a band, um, 
you know, you could go there and find some like-minded people, mm -hmm. maybe find a, a, a spare room in a house that you can pay 50 bucks a week on and live in, on some peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for a while while you go and find the coffee house gig yeah, yeah. or the music store gig like I did and, you know, that kind of thing. And figure out what it is that you are. And, like, I was thankful for some for that ability in the 90s, like I think it was something that was the last kind of decade mm -hmm. that this was really truly available in a lot of cities where, yeah. and uh, some really fostered it more than others. And you look at Austin as this blues town and all that, yeah. but it also feeds off its sister cities and things like that. And San Antonio was only 45 minutes away. So it was like the Sydney Newcastle connection. Yeah. You know, and then it was a long way off, like Melbourne, you know, <laughs> to the next thing. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. How do you see those changes there at the uh, the ballroom now? It's the um, Newcastle Hotel. Look, it's sort of, lo is it losing that LGBT sort of look, I, link? I, I, What's the, it's sad to say that there was, a, as you say, there was sort of a period there where it was a, a happening venue. Uh, with look, 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 man. Look, um, the people that created the small ballroom are some of the coolest people that I've worked with. Mm -hmm. um, the folks at Kingdom Sounds are really, really good friends of mine. And I have watched that mob put their heart and soul through political bullshit <laughs> because they just want a space that is profitable and yeah. really, really good. And they've got them all over this, the state, right? Mm -hmm. So there was a management regime in that in that place that did some really unsavory things mm -hmm. and a lot of people took a big fucking hit and it yeah. did it did derail us mm -hmm. and you know i'm not afraid to say these things yeah um it did take a bit of the steam out but after that they've never given up yeah and so it had to be saved you know, you had to get rid of the disease. Yeah, yeah. And it's gone through a healing. Mm -hmm. And now they have new owners, and I wish them the absolute best with what's an iconic place. Mm -hmm. They've made a decision to change the direction in the front, and for reasons that I won't get into that I do understand, um, I understand their decision to do it. Mm -hmm. Um and I really, really do hope that they do well with it because I've, I've driven by on weekends, coming yeah. home from other gigs, and I've seen the nightclub lineup. Now, it might not be as much band-heavy as it was, yep. but look, if this is how they're finding to make it work at the moment, and then... Let's keep it as a viable space. Because I, I do think it's lost out to some other venues because of some of the things that happened. Mm -hmm. And so it will take a while... Just like it took 18 months for when I was there, when we, I just happened to kind of walk in as yep. we were rolling it up and we really got it going where it was a smashing place, it man. Was, yeah, yeah. It, it, really it was the talk. It was the talk of the town. Mm. And it's funny. I work at Lazat's now, but I told Brian when I first started working over there, I said, man, I used to consider my place the alternative Lazat's mm -hmm. because we were afraid to have anything, yep. right? Within our purvey, mm -hmm. we were just allowed to have louder stuff, yeah. right? We, we would do the punk stuff. Mm -hmm. We would do that, but it was really trying to have this small, intimate place. And we had, PA was good. 
Yeah, you it's know, a great venue to play. All that. And, you know, punk shows where they're spitting on you. Yeah. That reminded me of CBGB's <laughs> in New York City, right? I yeah. saw the... I, <laughs> I saw the Ramones at CBGB's um, as a kid. And so like that visceral thing, you know, uh, um, Smith Street Band, one of my favorite moments, their guys mixing out front and I go up around the side of the one speaker cabinet to just kind of play a bit of security. Mm -hmm. And the monitors are all pushed a meter up stage. The guys are like backed right up against the steps. Yeah. The lead singer's having to kind of like stand on the drum riser and lead forward on his, <laughs> on his thing. And it's just raging. I wouldn't have changed a bit of it for yeah, a minute, yeah. man. There's 300 people in my venue just absolutely going off, having the best time, being respectful. But it was just like it was this huge push. Yeah. So my monitors, which came out of the sky. Uh, um, you know that story. Uh, this is what we got. But man, it was just this thing of humanity. And I just like, mm. that's the whole point of everything yeah, that yeah. we do is the <laughs> people right you want to make something good for the people life is twisted and shit and you have to make compromises right from that and the greatest performers are those that when you walk in and they come out on stage they kind of grab you by the face and go hi for the next 90 minutes <laughs> you're fun. you're mine yeah yeah right let's play <laughs> right and i think we're good. It would do us good to remind ourselves of that, no matter which part of this business that we're in, because if yeah. we're not delivering that thing, we're all dead and buried. Yeah. yeah.